Distant Dog Barking, Episode 1, written by D.D. McWolf. Joe stood abruptly at 3.59 p.m. and groaned involuntarily as she stretched out a knot in her lower back. That final minute of her workday was going to feel like 30 while she pretended to rummage around her desk for something she needed for her trip. In fact, her backpack had been ready since lunch so as not to delay her a single minute past 4 p.m. As the clock hit the hour, she left her formica-clad cubicle and beelined for the elevator, intent on clearing the building before 4.01 and reaching the street within a proven 90-second window. Joanna, can I talk with you a minute? Blomgild's voice arrested her as she stepped across the freedom divide of office floor and elevator. Should she pretend she didn't hear amidst the din of disassembling office and chiming shoot to liberty? Deciding to ignore him, the sliding door was halted anyhow by her supervisor's chubby hand. Joanna, a quick word. Oh, sure. Feigning surprise, Joe stepped back out and followed her overweight jailer to his glass-walled observatory in the corner of the floor. Close the door. When are you leaving for Seattle? Tomorrow morning. I think the flight's at six-something. Right. I'm all ready. I have the briefings and... and you need to connect with a guy called Ryan, uh, Ryan Darford. He's the VP of Evergreen and has reasons of his own for backing our bid. But he needs to see the proposal right before the board meeting so he gets in sync with our strategy. Okay, she replied. Make sense? Totally. Good, here's his card. Blumgild reached out with a velvety black and gold business card revealing the preposterous salary and taste to match. This ought to be bad, Joe thought. I'll call him when I land about uh, 9 a.m. local. Yeah, yeah, and, and call me right after to let me know everything's on track. I, I don't need any stress over this. I will. Don't let us down, Joanna. I won't. Awesome. Blomgill raised his hand for a high five, but Joe had already turned to walk away and so ignored her boss's nauseatingly jockish parting gesture. Why was it awesome, she wondered. What are you, five years old? What was this ubiquitous insistence to conclude every menial conversation with a signal of sporting excellence? And five minutes of donated time. Ugh. Joe walked fast across the parking lot to shed the stench of halitosis-infused office air and resentment from her clothes. 4.06 p.m. The street. The freedom. Full tilt home. Since school days, Joe was an outsider, kid who kicked stones around the schoolyard at recess, misunderstood by all and targeted by bullies. Her symmetrical features and painful shyness were now, in adulthood, cloaked with an unkempt mop of hair and utilitarian duds. She walked the seven minutes to work each day in blundstones, screw laces, hands crammed into jacket pockets, messenger bag hanging precipitously on the edge of her shoulder, and eyes to the ground in faint perpetual melancholy and fear of them contacting another's, especially a guy's. Men were the abyss of confusion and the adjudicators of certain failure, dispensing guaranteed pain for every misstep and fabricated infraction. The streets outside were a mess. Garbage was strewn everywhere and people walked with anxious purpose, hurrying for home or running hasty errands so as to spend as little time out as possible. This was the fifth day of rioting since the climate demonstration last week, and last night Homeland Security had finally implemented a 9 p.m. curfew and deployed the National Guard to enforce it. 
Joe cussed as she skidded on a wet plastic bag. Fucking hipsters. They want the planet cleaned up and all they succeed in doing is kicking over the dumpster. She'd seen it all coming a decade ago when Climate Revolt had first launched in the 20-teens. It was only a matter of time before their poorly thought-out strategy made full and ugly impact with the immovable industrial machine. And now, after a decade of whining, when they don't get their way, they all throw a temper tantrum and upset the whole apple cart. They'd reminded her of college hippies, the champagne socialists, getting all hot and bothered over some socioeconomic injustice or big polluter only to jump in their SUVs and fly home to mummy and daddy for Christmas. What did they know about being poor? People who are dependent on a job don't have time to piss on the economic mechanisms that support them. Why don't all these misguided rebels just make a mass suicide pact? That'd fix carbon emissions. What do they say that the average fool produces 10,000 tons of CO2 in their lifetime? Not to mention the thousands of tons of fecal waste and non-recyclable detritus. Those cute little hipster couples living their green lifestyles were directly offsetting any good they thought they were doing by spitting out even a single child, which they'd christen with a last name to exemplify their bourgeois urbanity. She was passing such a couple now, the beard on one of them being the only signifier that he was actually the male, as they anxiously hustled past in their androgynous designer hipster duds being led by their starter child, a labradoodle called Winston. Winston, slow down. We're okay. We'll be home soon, baby, the bearded one spake. He's scared, honey, the hipster female replied. I know, I know. I'm, I'm sorry, the male one whined as they faded off down the trash-littered sidewalk. There weren't many others out and about, and almost no cars. This was not the Brooklyn Joe knew, bustling with nauseatingly genial people, comparing phone apps and making plans to have coffee or meet for inane, politically correct conversation. And somehow... They're all artists. What's that about? Artists used to be the penniless with an abundance of talent. Now they're anyone with an abundance of money and zero talent. She slammed the apartment door behind her to shut out any malfeasant particulate that may have followed her home. She shed her coat, bag, and shoes on the mat, pulled a Stella from the fridge, and pried aside the ceramic stopper to decant it ceremoniously into a glass stein. Grabbing a dinged-up Altoids tin from the cutlery drawer, she flopped onto her Lazy Boy, the only heirloom she'd wanted after her grandfather's funeral. She rolled a joint and lit it. Success. Another day of misery clocked onto the time card of life, complete and soon to be sealed with a few hours of euphoric haze induced by the miracles of hops and hemp. Joe had no clue about the purpose of life. The question itself begged for reason. For her, it was all as haphazard as the dance of dust particles floating about in the shaft of sunlight leaking between her carelessly closed blackout curtains, the same shaft of solar annoyance that now woke her from a deep and blissfully oblivious sleep. Fuck the sun. Fuck, was the time? She leapt from bed, bitten by panic. Had she forgotten to set the alarm? She was supposed to have been in a cab by now, all packed and showered and en route to the airport. She could get coffee there and crap on the plane. Oh, hate that. Maybe she could hold it till Seattle. Fuck. Flapping around in an uncaffeinated muddle, Joe managed to throw what she hoped were the right articles of formal clothing into a garment bag, 
pull on her jeans and boots, slip on her most worn in t-shirt and bolt out the door with her goodwill leather jacket and bag in hand. No time for an Uber. She hopped into a yellow cab just as it was being vacated by a Hasidic Jew and his mini-me child heading to school, presumably also late. Joe and the father exchanged subtle nods at their shared hurry before the child was dragged to the institutional gates, missing every third step in the rush. Joe had loathed school. Too many kids. A nanosecond of pity for the child. Jesus. School was tough enough without the challenge of attire. Then, LaGuardia, Joe barked at the driver. Take the 59th, please. Thanks. It was always a mistake to tell a New York City cab driver which route to take as they invariably knew that particular day's quickest. But Joe needed to show urgency and didn't want the taxi adding unnecessary time in his bid for an extra buck. Get there fast and I'll make up the difference in the tip, she said. The cabbie nodded and continued to jabber away in Hindi on his cell phone, apparently discussing Modi and perhaps how his policies affected life for relatives at home or something who knew. Who cared? Fucking New York. Rome of cities, sure, but such a multicultural mishmash, it had lost any discernible flavor. Like soup of leftovers, something a person would make from everything left in their fridge before leaving on summer vacation. Just a shit bisque of mushrooms, fish, eggs, garlic, three onions, a cup and a half of applesauce, a stick and a half of butter, a quarter bag of arugula a slice of pizza and the solidified contents of last week's Chinese takeaway. Joe had loved it when she first arrived, but she was tired to the marrow now, tired of the same worn routine, tired of the nicely paid job that paid for a nicely priced lifestyle she was too afraid to leave. This salary anywhere else would be life-changing, but here it was simply sustaining a status of quota. Carefully measured portions of shelter and nourishment and entertainment and imbibers to guarantee you'd cross the weekend bridge into another psalm, a Verdun, a Gallipoli, or a Butte Joe had long hoped for one cataclysmic event, a catalyst to compel her to jump track, but four years, eleven months, and twenty days had failed to deliver. And next month she was up for review and promotion. More money, sure but more responsibility and oh so many more hours in the trenches. Her precious bridges would be getting shorter despite more ching to embellish them. So she decided a while back she'd use her increased wages on call girls and take a new one out each Saturday night to the eatery of the moment. It would be her 12-hour fantasy holiday once a week because God knows civilian women were impossible domineering and aggressive and always on the verge of crying foul. The fear that accompanied her thoughts of her female peers put dread in her toes. But a call girl was there for that. To look pretty, to smile appreciatively and laugh at all her crap witticisms and feign pleasure and awe at her bedroom mastery. Who gave a shit? She'd love each and every one of them unconditionally. For a night and she was good-looking enough to pass it off as legit should a co-worker bump into her on her date, and the escort would play along because she was paid to do so and make her proud. And she'd dress cool and be cavalier, and word would get out and around that she scored hotties, and often. Why else did single folks strive to earn, other than to get laid and look cool? And Joe's existence currently delivered none of that. Sixty-eight dollar, the cabbie shouted. Joe poked a 50 and a 20 through the little perspex tray, 
followed by a ten, and struggled out of the spring-shot seats of the cab onto the sidewalk. She ran for the revolving door, only to be forced to wait as it turned at a safe-for-old-lady speed and finally deposited her into departures. Of course, nothing was clearly labelled, and airline employees shuffled about, deftly avoiding eye contact with Joe and all other hurried, harried passengers. Excuse me, can you tell... Short, fat, zombie woman walked by as though on some automated mission, controlled by an earpiece and a chip in her brain as well as on her shoulder, programmed to ignore all external pleas for assistance that might deviate or delay her from her one menial task of setting up a cordon at the far end of the terminal. As a child of jet-setting parents, Joe recalled that flying had once been such a thrill, staffed by attractive, courteous, enthusiastic, impeccably dressed persons intent on your absolute comfort and proud adherence to a globalized standard of service. But 75 million millennials like me, Joe thought, entering the pedestrian economy like a busted dam meant that everything and everyone was stressed, overused, and worn down to essential functionality. Staff now looked as though they'd been recruited from a pool of illegal immigrants stuck in international airport limbo like Tom Hanks. They looked like they slept in their uniforms on a gatehouse bench, rolled off to a cup of vending machine coffee, crapped in a staff room toilet, and then gone straight into their role without washing their hands. Planes were invariably still soiled from previous flights with sticky tray tables, crummy seats, and trash stuffed into the magazine pocket. On her last flight, Joe had even found an air sickness bag, full of vomit, neatly crimped shut and replaced as though never used, and clearly never checked. Stewards were grumpy now, where they used to be gracious. Some wore body odor in place of nice perfume, worn down heels instead of polished new stilettos. Most had asses too large for the aisles and the attitudes of New York City DMV workers. Joe finally located her airline's check-in area. Self-checking machines were clogged by confused foreign passengers, jostling handcarts piled high with bulging cases and suspicious-looking taped cardboard boxes, all waiting for one designated helper to direct them through the process. The slowly snaking queues seemed to be the less aggravating option, but still a zigzag of people with too much baggage weaving back and forth through a nylon corral, compelled to view each other's grey faces again and again, and all clad in ways that suggested their destination. Hawaiian shirts off to the beach, puffer jackets to the slopes, jeans to the south, suits to the east coast, jewellery to Europe, and primary colours to Disney World. Joe had previously always tried to find what appeared to be the shortest line, but modern airports were non-Newtonian systems in that the faster you desired to move, the slower you got there. So she'd latterly given up on that and resigned herself to the fact that it would be hours of misery until her destination was finally reached. Thankfully, most everyone seemed to be in the same hell. So she wasn't alone. Poor comfort, but she'd take what solace she could get. Boarding passes in hand, her crowd was thrown back together again in the security line, only now in various states of undress. Their possessions dragged out and displayed in grey plastic tubs and the smell of foot and armpit, adding abattoir stress to the authoritarian barks of TSA agents. Airports made refugees out of everyone, she decided. 
two TSA agents with shaven heads and overdeveloped torsos resembling pit bulls seemed intent on humiliating a short Japanese tourist couple as if for punishment of some generational war crime. Joe felt bad for them. The Japanese were so polite, this would have been the ultimate shame for them being hauled back and forth through the x-ray, stripped down to everything short of their pants and undershirts, reprimanded for locking their cases and not properly displaying every personal belonging. A tiny bottle of moisturizer was finally confiscated from the wife as though that had been the reason for the torture. Fingers were wagged at them and heads shaken in moral disapproval. Then they were dumped out the back end half-naked in a pile of clothes and belongings. Losing face is the ultimate sin in Asian cultures. And Tokyo's security was a delight of manners and efficiency, but Joe imagined these TSA dullards had never left American shores to know that you don't need to be an asshole to get things done. Once while running late for a plane in Tel Aviv, Joe had been hauled up by Israeli airport security who seemingly looked upon her hurry as a ploy to smuggle something on board. Despite their machine guns, assertiveness, and thoroughness, their respect was far more disarming and would have unveiled malice more readily than the typical bully tactics deployed here. Last year, she even applied for the TSA fast-track pass, hoping to escape the security line process, and underwent all the intrusive annoyances to complete it, only to find short staffing at airports and lack of passenger participation meant there was almost never a fast-track line, and she had to endure the cattle drives anyway. Add in that Joe hated flying, not for a fear of crashing, but because she was a germaphobe. Disliked tight quarters, bad food, stale air, smelly people, and just about every other fucking thing about it. Her boss was too cheap to pay for business class, and there had been no upgrades available, so she located her aisle seat at the rear of the plane, right next to the toilet. Oh joy. The window was occupied by an obese, bald man in an orange puffer who spilled over the armrest into her side, making her already diminutive seat all but impossible to occupy. She imagined check-in staff sniggering at their impossible pairings. Joe took as long as she could to arrange her backpack in the overhead locker whilst tactfully keeping an eye peeled for an unclaimed seat nearby, but the flight felt overbooked, so she wasn't hopeful. And... True to Murphy's law, if she did jump into an empty, it'd only be claimed by the tardy idiot who held up the plane because he was posting selfies on Facebook or chatting up a stewardess at the concourse bar. Neither she nor Puffer Jack were inclined to talk. Puffer, because he was likely embarrassed at taking more than his fair share of the plane, and Joe, because she was aching with annoyance at having to lean out into the aisle and endure a shoulder-beating from every passenger going to the shitter. And her headset didn't work. And her own was in her garment bag that she was forced to part with at the airplane door. Sorry, miss, it's a full flight. You'll have to check that. And yet a parade of overstuffed people had rolled on with their overstuffed carry-ons, heaved them onto the overstuffed overheads and strained to push them shut for that telltale click. Joe managed to squeeze her hand down into her jacket pocket for a mini bottle of sanitizer, which she used, then replaced with the chest pocket for easier access later. She then slipped out her notebook and decided to lose herself in unnecessary preparation for today's meeting, a presentation she'd done and closed a dozen times, and her boss always made it sound like it was her first and emphasized the importance of not stressing him with failure. 
Perhaps she'd just blow this one on purpose, or spin it all maverick and scare everyone, then bring it back on base and close with aplomb. Mix it up, why not? It wasn't curing cancer or anything, just a bog-standard closed-network security system that no one would care to hack anyhow, unless they were desperate to learn the species of conifers harvested and replanted in the Pacific Northwest. Tree security? Really? Okay, the proposed system was obviously to cover tax fraud, but what IRS auditor was going to don lumberjack gear and head out into the godforsaken wilderness to count trees and match stump numbers to a lumber ledger? She'd scare them a little, why not? How could she put the wind up a bunch of lumber kings and still win the deal? But actually, the very idea of expending even an ounce of additional energy on these people made her cross-eyed. Or was it the hangover? And Joe started to nod off during taxi with pen poised over paper and woke only momentarily at the whine, drone, and clunk of wheels up. They were supposed to have landed at 8.35 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, but by 9 they were clearly flying in circles over Seattle. Then the captain appeared on the tannoy to mumble something about some security issues at SeaTag, and they'd be on a holding pattern for a further 20 minutes. But that 20 minutes turned into 40 before he made a second announcement that it would be another 30. Something about other airports being closed too, such is modern travel, Joe thought. So how do they fuel for extended flying time, she wondered as she drifted back to sleep. Need a drink? Joe had woken fully to a loud bang and a jolt and was sitting upright, alert now. Puffer jacket was hauling out a generic airline mini-scotch. Joe thought Puffer must have assumed she was nervous. No, it's, it's just turbulence. I'm fine. Thanks, anyway. No, no, it's, it's my apology for stealing half your seat. Oh, that. Well, yeah, well, mm. no, it's too early for me, but thank you. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. It's been a lifelong struggle, you know, being overweight. I should book two seats, but it's so damned expensive. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Joe stopped herself from remarking on Puffer's obesity. But Puffer scowled an immediate, inconsolable offense, even at the implication she thought him to be fat. Or not, just, just saying, Joe cushioned. Puffer was quiet, cracked open the scotch, and poured it into his own plastic cup to give himself a double. A flood of panic then overtook Joe. She suddenly remembered she'd forgotten the meeting proposals. In her rush to leave, she'd left them. They were in a binder, one for each attending staff member, sitting on the sideboard next to her apartment door, ready and waiting, but now forgotten and useless. Fuck, Joe exclaimed audibly, just as another jolt rocked the plane and an overhead locker fell open three seats down and dumped its contents loudly into the aisle. Someone squawked in alarm and everyone started murmuring anxiously as the seatbelt light dinged on. The pilot reappeared to announce the plane was entering some turbulence and told everyone to return to their seats and fasten their seatbelts. The attendants walked hurriedly fore and aft, staring at laps as though judging genital endowment. It's big, Joe wished she'd had the nerve to say at the scowling steward, a scowl that Joe thought camouflaged authentic fear. Then a loud bang, followed by the diminishing whine of a dying engine, thrust the passengers into panic, and there was an abrupt drop in speed and altitude, followed by silence and wind. Jesus, that must have been 
The second engine, Joe said aloud. Puffer's face dilated like an owl and he downed the whole scotch in a wonner. People do funny things when reminded of death or the imminence of it. That sobering inevitability theologians once encouraged commoners to ponder regularly to keep us humble, yet we've long since forgotten to remember. So when the possibility of death stares us down, we crumble because of our ill-preparedness. We lose all dignity and composure. We clamber over the faces of the elderly and children as we forego all decency in the bid to save our pathetic asses. If we readied ourselves daily, as the aesthetics advised, would we find peace in that moment? Or is being cool under fire a genetic endowment? Joe concluded it was a practiced art or side effect of melancholy as she observed her fellow passengers respond to their terror like corn in a popper, bouncing around the cabin, banging and shouting in short, breathless whoops as they absorbed the fact that the plane was going down. She could only see one other calm passenger, a man in his fifties, across the aisle in the middle seat of three, with a glow of serenity and acceptance illuminating his face. Time slowed for a minute as he felt her gaze, and he turned slowly to smile at her as if to say, It's okay, right? This is okay for me, and I see this is okay for you, too. She nodded and smiled back. This moment of mind-speak was the most intense she'd felt in her short life, as though for them a channel of timelessness remained undisturbed and the mayhem around them was dialed down to a soft, babbling background noise. They smiled and gazed at each other, and she explored his unremarkable features and wondered at the fact that someone she'd never have looked twice at was now the last and most beautiful face she'd ever seen. And she felt replete for those few brief seconds or minutes who knew how long, and all those worries and malcontentments fell away as if only attached to her outer shell by a faint magnetism or the strange human desire to carry misery as an excuse, as a reason to grumble, to procrastinate and avoid truly living. Their sightline was suddenly broken by falling luggage, and with it the cacophony of hellacious cries broke the trance and the man was obscured in the tumult. The next few minutes were infused with so much adrenaline that Joe barely heard the pilot's announcements to prepare for impact. Nor could she assume the futile impact brace position with Puffer embracing the two seats in front, sobbing and imploring the name of Jesus. Nor did she hear the screams, nor smell the stench of shit and piss blasting the cabin. Nor could she reach for the oxygen mask that swung like a yellow jockstrap from the ceiling. Lines of yellow jockstraps. Why in hell would I want that on my face, she mused, as she removed her sanitizer and squirted a pool into her left palm. Impact was strangely comforting. The end of an awful wait, an overwhelming roar of ripping timber, twisting metal and grinding stone, drowning all the screams and gnashing of teeth, and a roar of synchronized whoas as 149 passengers had the air forced abruptly from their lungs on impact. Joe was being born. Again, perhaps. Above her, a beautiful snow-white gaping vaginal slit with a clear view of cerulean. Utter numbness, no pain. This was death, then. 
but a strangely conscious birth. Death was a conscious birth from a virgin womb to a beautiful blue sky. This was the tunnel and white light people had spoken of. It wasn't a synoptical shutdown, the brain's death throes warping the optic nerve. Whoa, there was an afterlife after all. Silent, and it was silent. So silent and light, no human stain or din. Heaven was the absence of the species to which she'd reluctantly belonged. Would she now fly in that sky, free as a bird? She stared at the blue above and felt a gentle euphoria overtake her. She raised her hand toward the sky and extended her fingers that had no feeling in them, and as she was about to drift off into sleep, a sound, footsteps, the muffled vroop, vroop of feet in deep, powdery snow. Then a large adult hand, silhouetted black against the sky, reaching inside to meet hers. A celestial midwife, angel, assisting her birth, her admission into the afterlife. White brightening, fading detail. She couldn't resist unconsciousness. Black. <laughs>